This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing the rest of my Times radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times radio app. Uh, Coming up today is King's Speech Day. A big moment for both the King and, of course, the Prime Minister. The first time the King's delivered the King's Speech as the King, although obviously he's the Prince of Wales. He did stand in for uh, the late Queen early last year, but it's also Rishi Sunak's uh, King's speech. The next time the Conservatives lay out their policies like this, it will be in an election manifesto. In a moment, we'll hear from our political editor, Kate McCann, taking us through the politics of the King's speech. And the King of Impressions, John Colshaw, imagines what he might really want to say. But first, as it's a Tuesday, it must be a how to win an election day. Peter Madison, Daniel Finkelstein and Polly McKenzie joining me over on our brand new podcast, How to Win an Election. Uh, taking a look at how to win and lose, yes, millions of votes. So we thought we'd bring you a little snippet of it before you head over to listen to the full thing. This is the How to Win Election trio talking about how to write a great policy. Strike up the band! I'm Peter Mandelson, and I'm a fighter, not a quitter. I'm Daniel Finkelstein. I've probably got greater expertise in losing elections than in winning them. I'm Polly McKenzie, and I've spent so much time writing policy briefings that most people don't read that people call me Policy McKenzie. Yeah, here we are again then. Episode two of How to Win an Election. The first one obviously went okay. Uh, Thank you to all of you who posted uh, comments and things and been in touch. It's been nice. Some of you have been nice. Matt, I noticed that you changed Polly's introduction. Yes. But you're proposing throughout the entire series to repeat the fact that I kept losing elections. Well, no, because that's all become clear. At the beginning clear, of my own podcast, the one that th- I'm actually on. We thought it would be a, a fluid situation, and because today we're going to focus on policy, we thought we'd use Policy McKenzie. <laughs> uh, I have lost elections too, Danny, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I think fluid. I've lost elections worse and harder than you. <laughs> oh, that's a good competition. Situation. Nobody is better at losing the elections than the Labour Party. No, there we are. No competition. Clip all that up. That's next week sorted. <laughs> well, you've sort of introduced yourselves again... Uh, Daniel Finkelstein, Peter Madison. Oh, well, oh, let's do your proper introductions. Tory Brainbox, Daniel Finkelstein. Uh, New Labour mastermind, Peter Madison, and Lib Dems, Policy McKenzie. <laughs> How are you, Polly? 
Uh, I'm very well. This must be I'm like... not actually a member of the Lib Dems. Just no, I, know. I don't want to deceive anyone. No. I did work for the Lib Dems for, for uh, just time. over a decade. No. So, you know, no shame in that. But I... I also helped to found a different political party, so you and know, you're much better they now. frown on that. Yeah, exactly right. Very good, very good. Well, if you do, thank you for all of your, your messages about the first episode. If you want to get in touch with your questions and comments and complaints, uh, you can e- email us, howtowin at thetimes.co.uk, and uh, we'll do some of your questions uh, a bit later on. Now, we, obviously, this is like your, your World Cup Christmas come early, isn't it? King's Speech Day, Policy Mackenzie, you must be absolutely... You know, all your Christmases come at once. Uh, no, I think we need to discuss the elephant in the room, which is everyone's just calling it the King's Speech as if that's normal. This is the Queen's Speech, and we just renamed it, and now all it does is make me think about Colin Firth. Yeah. And and once you're thinking about Colin Firth, it's hard to have other rational thoughts. And, <laughs> you know? Well, so I, I'm struggling a bit. It's cognitive dissonance. We're very pleased that Danny and Peter are here, because obviously, really, you should be in your we ermine. We shouldn't be here at all. You should be, you should be in your ermine. We're on playing the hooky. Yes. We're playing you hooky go, and of course, to go to the... Uh, King's or Queen's speech, you have to obtain ermine, which you either can can rent for the day, and costing about one hundred and eighty pounds. Is that from like? Is that a special moss? There's a sort of raffle, you know, among the lords. So there's a number of these ermine that you can have uh, given to you if you are lucky enough to win the ballot, which I did one year. And then one year, when I'd written about it in the Times, one of our readers sent me. His ermine, because he was a hereditary peer who no longer needed it himself. <laughs> so I, wa- I noticed the people who bought the ermine, which cost about ten thousand pounds, it was very expensive. They look sort of absolutely perfect. Mine was slightly more uh, used, and I then had to. I then realised I had to return it to this guy once I'd used it, and I put it in a plastic bag and went to uh, mails, boxes, etc. Uh, and they were very puzzled by it, and they picked it up, and they went, "Ooh, a Santa costume!" <laughs> <laughs> oh well, we're pleased. We're pleased you're both here, because obviously, both, uh, both as uh, members of the House of Lords, you could be in the Lords to listen to the King, but you're here listening to me instead. So I feel very. I've, I've, that's that's a high compliment you could pay me. Um, so the King's speech happens at the beginning of every parliamentary year. Obviously, the, the significance of this one is the last one we expect before a general election. So it is much about what the Tories, the message they want to try and land in the run-up to the general election. Um, how big a deal is it, do you think, Polly? Can a King's speech like this, laying out their sort of legislative plans, really shift the dial? I think it can if you are planning a, a sort of big legislative fights about it. Like, one of my earliest memories in Parliament was the sort of all-night sittings in the run-up to 2005 general election about terrorism. And there was basically no chance of the Labour Party getting those legislative provisions through. But what they could do is have a big fight that helped dominate the news agenda. Um, And it's clear that part of what they're aiming to do here is create difficulties, oppositions, bear traps, so that you can have through the next however many months it's going to be, lots of those kind of ideally knife edge votes, maybe even a, a late night or overnight sitting in the House of Lords uh, to help create kind of tension and conflict. They want the Labour Party to be either forced to oppose stuff that sounds nice or uh, equally to uh, vote against uh, vote in favour of stuff that is sort of a, get a bit more right wing and kind of create a sort of factionalism, divide, kind of tribal warfare within the Labour Party that distracts their attention from fighting the election. Gosh. I mean, that's the sort of political king speech that 
the government are designing one that will lay traps for the Labour Party and make us sort of squirm in embarrassment and fill us with tension and internal party rows, which will go completely unnoticed by the rest of the country. <laughs> they will not care at all. I mean, this King speech is the product of a team, I think, around uh, Rishi Sunak, who spend far, far too much time in Westminster. What they think is important and exciting in Westminster is of no interest or relevance to the rest of the country. I suspect there may be, you know, I mean, the King's speech is obviously going to be, you know, full of lots of small things, some of which may be popular if they're ever noticed by the public, few of which are going to affect people's lives, none of which are going to turn the dial uh, about the future of our country. And I, I just think that people who around Sunak who get very excited about this sort of political trap laying for Labour just a, sort of operating within a bubble. Yeah. So, within know, a bubble. Well, I don't know particularly whether they have got excited about it, but I think all three of us have probably... <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Yeah. But the, all three of us have done the same thing, which is try to explain to the press what the theme of the Queen's speeches or the monarchs. Oh, they never let me talk to journalists, Danny. <laughs> but it's no, it's develop you, it for you the... You to me. To do, you? You're special. Oh, to develop it for the people who are going to do the briefing of the press. And the problem with, with all these um, legislative programmes is they're all brokered. So all of the departments want a bit of the uh, speech in order to produce their own reform in their own area. And the job then of the, uh, you know, of, the, of Downing Street combined with the leader of the House is to divide up this, these ideas and allocate them to some people to give them enough time because the crucial thing in legislation is always just getting enough time and if we assume that they're going to have a full legislative session they need to have time to finish certain things. So first of all it doesn't really have a theme as a result of that it's it's much more negotiated than that the theme's usually grafted on at the end of it. <laughs> so but, so they, they literally sit and look at it and go well, there's quite a lot of crime in this. Is this a big yeah, crime? Exactly. Speech? So it's trying to it's trying to sort of then, you know, they'll, they've got to try and link it to the party conference theme. So they're going to say this shows thinking of thirty years. But in fact, most of this work was done before they thought up the party conference scheme. So mu much of this, I think, description of what the, the of the theme of the King's Speech is mostly confected. Um, but but the lead, and I also agree with. Peter and Polly, that, that insofar as the public is concerned, these kind of disputes in Westminster, which they definitely will try and provoke, you're right, Polly, will not matter that much. Mm -hmm. What does matter is what do these pieces of legislation do? The problem with this one is it's it's a bit late for that. So let's, for example, take a football regulator. They're going to introduce a football regulator. By the time a football regulator is appointed and a football regulator begins to regulate football, whether you think it's a good or a bad idea, which is the only time when anyone will notice what the government has done or it'll impact people's lives. By that point, the, this government probably won't be in power anymore. So I don't think so this King's becomes speech a Labour is, football is that, in, yeah, is that impactful. Danny, thing, you're a big football geek. Why is the football regulator going to apply to men's football and not women's, I hear? It's the patriarchy, Peter. Is it the patriarchy? It was just a review. It was just based on a review of, of the of the financial sustainability of the men's game uh, and it would well, what about the women's game well yeah. it, it's just not ha it doesn't yeah. ha hasn't raised the same sustainability but it's uh, blossoming problems. it's different yes but it's women's football the, is coming alive all over the place well, I, I, maybe someone will try and amend the uh, the bill. <laughs> They're going to have so a round. That would be a good round. You could go to round. the okay. Lords, Peter, and I know because obviously these football issues are very important to you. Maybe very close to my heart. I used to be the uh, honorary president of Hartlepool United Football Club, and uh, 
when I stood down from my constituency, they wanted me to continue. I did so for a few years, and then I thought, no, I must give this up. Was it the football mascot in favour of my elected as the mayor? Yes, thank you very yeah. much, Matt. That's Angus. Uh, I think Is it we, Angus, uh, uh, the monkey. Yes, yeah. it was yeah. Angus, the hanging monkey. <laughs> and I, on the day he was a uh, night he was elected, I went to him. I said, "It looks as if you're going to be elected. Just take that ridiculous." bloody costume oh thank you pdq i'm not having you make an even greater fool of our town than you've already <laughs> succeeded in doing i was apoplectic well we won't, we'll, we'll get him in for next week um, <laughs> now the, the weird thing about the the, the most i cat talking about the you know the extent that anyone notices the most eye-catching policy from the government uh isn't even in the king's speech it was sort of rather than putting forward this idea of uh, of clamping down on tents and homeless people making a lifestyle choice to live in tents uh, call me cynical, Polly, but it feels to me like this is probably something she wanted in the King's speech, didn't get it. Somebody, unfortunately, then briefed the papers about it, which forced her to tweet what about it. What a mistake. And, and it's reinforced her reputation as being, you know, more hardline than even this government. But actually, it was interesting how the Cabinet lined up to say they didn't agree with it. Yeah, I mean, as Danny says, there is this kind of... I don't know if you imagine a sort of head teacher in front of a whole primary school full of children, desperately with their hands up, with their own little, like, bit of legislation that they want. And some of that is something worthy about eggs that they've been trying to get a legislative slot for for 50 years. And some of it is, I just really want to poke poor people with sticks and I, I need a law to be able to do it. And, and so there will always be disappointed people. And it's then one of those challenges that for every minister, they have a combination of agendas. One is to secure the future of their political party, but then also to think about their positioning. Mm. And if we assume that Rishi Sunak is going to lose the next election and that therefore there will be a contest for the next leader, of course, some ministers, and it seems like Swala Braverman is, is one of them, will be starting to think about how do I make my, how do I differentiate myself? It always strikes me that she's trying to get fired and it's this sort of slightly depressing game of chicken yeah. whereby she says stuff that's kind of, yeah. I don't know, disloyal and, and, and off message and yet nothing ever happens to her. One of the fascinating things about that I found when I got into the House of Lords, I don't know if you agree with this, Peter, but is the, the disconnect between the legislative programme and the political debate that's going on at that time. Often what's in Parliament isn't has gone from the news ages ago and doesn't come back until it doesn't work in two or three years at time. And I do remember during the middle of the Brexit debate, I had to leave a Zoom call that I was on in order to vote in an important division. And the, the Americans that I was talking to said they understood why I was leaving because, you know, there was all this big Brexit debate going on in the papers that had even reached the United <laughs> States. In fact, I was going to vote on whether certain members of the House of Lords should be allowed under the Ivory Bill to keep their ivory chess sets. That was actually, <laughs> Um, and so the, the 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 thing that's interesting about Suella Bradman's um, intervention is that she's trying to sort of shoehorn in politics um, and a sort of political point into a legislative programme that may be about actually some quite practical things. Um, and, you know, my own view is that what, re fortunately, what really shifts politics in the end is how those things actually impact on people's lives. In other words, I think that whether what the government does actually improves or does not improve life for homeless people or people who care about homelessness is going to be much more important to their, the outcome of the next election than anything Suella Bradman raises in the newspaper. Do you think Polly's right? Is she trying to get the sack? Is, is Rishi Sunak right to tolerate her? I, I think what she's... I would think what she's doing is trying to push as far as she possibly can, probably without getting the sack. So what I think she wants to do is to um, 
because I think being pushed right outside would probably not be the right strategy for her. What she wants to be is the outrider. And what she wants to be is the right-wing candidate uh, at the next uh, leadership election. Yeah, and so, the, so what she's... In fact, this is not, a, this is not aimed at Rishi Sunak, who probably wouldn't be there in these circumstances. It's more aimed at Kemi Badenoch and James Cleverly. It's trying to be the right-wing candidate against whoever is the candidate it's of the mainstream order. It's a sort of right-wing one-upmanship that she's going on for, going in for. I mean, she's basically everything that Rishi Sunak isn't. I mean, you know, he's a sort of granular, detailed, narrow vision, head down uh, uh, prime minister. She, she's a born disruptor. And what she wants to do is to sort of follow in the trail of Johnson and Truss as the person capable of upending everything in sight, disrupting the established order, tirading against the elite. And that's what she'll find any issue on which she can grandstand in, in order to that, do that. In any issue that involves vulnerable people. Vulnerable people, of course. Like, that's, well, she likes stigmatizing people. She likes to going after minorities. Anyone who can't defend themselves, she'll be after them. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> she's on a crusade against warmth. But for what do you do? People. I mean, you must have sat around the cabinet table occasionally with people with attention seekers, Peter. Um, what would be your <laughs> advice to? The Prime Minister in that situation, do you tolerate her? Do you slap her down? Do you sack her? No, he should have. Uh, he should not have appointed her in the first place. He was <laughs> but we only, are where we are. He was only trying to sort of... <laughs> he was sort of playing the factions of the Conservative Party. And then when he was stronger and had greater authority, he should have got rid of her earlier in the year. He, he would have known what was coming. She, he would have known what game she was playing. And he had the chance earlier this year to deal with it, and he, he ducked it. I mean, the, these Queen's speeches and sitting around the cabinet, they are funny things. I mean, I had a very odd experience in 1997 when uh, Tony Blair had made some glorious grandstanding speech about freedom of information to some progressive organisation that was presenting Freedom of Information Awards. And to great roars of applause, he committed the government to introducing the most radical freedom of information, transforming the government and everything else. When he actually got into number 10 and took advice on this, he discovered it really wasn't such a great idea. He then spent the next sort of few weeks trying to um, sort of weigh up whether he could just ditch the whole thing altogether. He couldn't. He put it into the Queen's speech. Then there was a uh, somebody in the Cabinet office trying to write a white paper about it. And I kept on receiving sort of notes and messages from number 10 saying, could I please put in a uh, memoranda you know, querying this and challenging that and questioning whether, the, 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 you know, the fundamentals of this white paper were a very good idea. I mean, Blair felt he couldn't oppose it himself, so they sort of went round the back and tried to get me. I was minister without portfolio at the time. He later described this fabulous piece of legislation as uh, he shook his head when he saw uh, what he had done. The, the sheer naivety and imbecility of this legislation, Tony Blair described it uh, uh, as and, and uh, regretted it ever since. But, you know, there we are. If you want to make grandstanding speeches in opposition, you have to live with you it when you're in government. Right. Well, there we are. Well, let, wait in a minute. We'll, I want to have a look a bit more about how you come up with a, a more popular, successful election-winning uh, policy. We'll do that next on how to win an election.
Peter Manson, Daniel Fink, and Polly McKenzie there on our brand new podcast, How to Win an Election. If you want to hear the full episode this week, including the worst policy they've ever been involved in, and the record by Peter Sellers, Harry Seacombe and Spike Milligan called How to Win an Election, somebody accusing us of plagiarism, worse than Rachel Reeves, they reckon. Anyway, you can find out all about that if you head on over to How to Win an Election, wherever you're listening to this. But not before we take you through the key points of the King's Speech. That's next on the Redbox Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Now, obviously, it's a big day for the King, and I'm absolutely delighted to say we are now joined live here on Times Radio by the King. Hello. Yes, hello. I'm very delighted to speak to you um, in order to just get oneself ready for this splendid occasion. Well, I'm glad you managed to get a signal on your on Zoom in the uh, in the robing room. Are you? How are you feeling? You pumped up? Yes, I, I think so. I, I did ask, you know, was all of this royal regalia absolutely necessary? I, I was hoping perhaps just to wear some comfortable track pants and a pair of Crocs and maybe some <laughs> other items of athleisure. But uh, no, they've insisted very much on the uh, royal regalia. So, well, fine. I suppose it looks correct. Uh, now, uh, Your Majesty, uh, some of our listeners have been sending in, because obviously the, the speech is actually written by the government rather than by... Uh, by the king. Uh, so we asked our listeners to send in some suggestions. They could write one line into the uh, speech today. Uh, what would it be? And I think you've got a few of them to share to share with us. I, I certainly do, and there are some very perspicacious suggestions indeed, uh, which, I mean, they, they say there may not be too many surprises in the king's speech that I must deliver today, so this might be the time just to get a few of them in. So let's um, let, let's see if any of these appeal. Um, my government will see to it that those who have video conferences in public without headphones shall have 45 dailed custard poured over their heads. <laughs> uh, my government will tax all misused apostrophes, which will pay for 3,000 new schools across England and Wales. A greater tax shall be levied on those individuals who point out incorrect potential apostrophes the whole time. Uh, there's more of these if we have time. For <laughs> yes, them. we'll have a couple more, John. Uh, John I'm sorry, um, your, your Majesty. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, sir. Thank you, Sir Matt. Um, my government will seek to return curly whirlies, wagon wheels, Jaffa cakes uh, and crisp packets to their 1972 size. Very good. So, That'll be very popular. And uh, let me see, let me see, yes. Uh, those who have loud conversations into mobile phones so that the entire train carriage can hear. Well, such lack of awareness shall see that these individuals have their faces pushed into the nearest rice pudding. <laughs> so I recommend this. 
These are all... Yeah. Uh, do you think they go down well, Kate? Would, would that, are, these, are these the sort of policies that would turn things around for Rishi Sunak? There's a lot of liquid-based desserts yeah. going on. We've got custard, we've got rice pudding, and I approve of both wholeheartedly. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Uh, now, let's turn our attention now to the impressionist John Colshaw. Um, John, we've spoken a few times about uh, since since the uh, the king's arrival on the scene, as it were. Have you noticed yeah. any change in the way he's going about himself and speaking since he's he's become king? I think yes, just a you know a little more stately. There's a little element of formality there, and that sense of being quite a chatty raconteur and so on, and that sort of understated way. I think that's that sort of worked in very charmingly. Um, so, so yes, there is a, a sort of a mellowing, and uh, uh, the gravitas just upped that little bit uh, that, that would come with with kingliness. The evolution is visible. And presumably, you are doing him all the time now, when having probably slightly dropped out of your your repertoire over the years. Yes, if if impersonation characters were the pop charts, uh, <laughs> he may have been. He may have been, you know, holding steady there at number twelve. But, um, you know, he's, he's in the top three now. <laughs> uh, well, thank you very much, John. It's lovely to lovely to, to have you here. I, for all state occasions, always improved by having John Colshaw. John, lovely to speak to you. Yeah, I knew about all the very best. Thank you. Ah, oh, the legend, the king of impressions, John Colshaw there, imagining what the king, or at least our listeners, might have liked to have seen in the king's speech. Well, enough of that nonsense. Now it's over to the real king. My government will, in all respects seek to make long-term decisions in the interests of future generations. My ministers will address inflation and the drivers of low growth over demands for greater spending or borrowing. My ministers will put the security of communities and the nation ahead of the rights of those who, ind who endanger it. By taking these long-term decisions, my government will change this country and build a better future. That was the King, delivering the first King speech for more than 70 years, beginning actually reflecting on that, talking about the paying tribute to the legacy of service and devotion of his mother, uh, the late Queen, before setting out details of what, uh, 20 bills, one draft bill. Um, Kate McCann, what stands out for you? What's the what's the overall theme and message that Rishi Sunak's trying to, to convey here? Well, we know that what the Prime Minister wants is to suggest to people that his government is going to govern for the long term, make long term strategic decisions for the better of people's lives. And there were a couple of moments in that speech where that was referenced, the idea that net zero investment is important and the government is committed to 2050, but not to add undue burdens onto households. Now, you know, there will be some elements of that speech that the King personally will have found very difficult to... He was inscrutable, though. He, he was. He did not grimace at any point. He delivered it as he was supposed to. He didn't. And, and, and it is always strange, isn't it, hearing the King talk in that way because, of course, the King is not allowed, really, to have those political opinions. We yeah. know that, as, as Prince Charles, he did, definitely. Yeah. Um, there was a reference in there to Network North, the new rail plan, which, you know, some people may snigger at that because it was meant to be HS2. It was scaled back and the investment was spread was out across else. the yeah, country. Yeah. Um, and there were another couple of things that we expected in there, references, uh, extensive references, actually, to the NHS, the importance of that, but also to terrorism and crime. And I think we are going to see from the Prime Minister a speech which will indicate that crime, justice and keeping people safe will be at the heart of what the government is aiming at here. 
Times Radio's political editor, Kate McCann, there. And as we were discussing, criminal justice, a big part of what Rishi Sinax wants to land as the key message out of this King's speech. So I asked the Times' Home Affairs editor, Matt Dathan, to take us through it. Yeah, there's two main sort of criminal justice bills. Uh, one is a sentencing bill, which will uh, mandate courts to impose whole life orders for the worst murderers, so those who murder... Uh, uh, with killing involving sexual or sadistic conduct, meaning they will never uh, qualify for parole. And and, um, and rapists and other serious sexual offenders will no longer qualify for early release as well under uh, much tougher uh, sentencing. But uh, alongside that will come the effective scrapping of short sentences. So uh, there will be a new presumption uh, against uh, sentences of 12 months or or under. So that will lead to about 30,000 fewer people going to prison every year. So you've kind of got two ends of the spectrum, toughening up at the most serious end uh, and taking a, uh, some might say, softer approach and punishing people in the community for the lower level uh, crimes. Is this a sign that, oh, I can hear some uh, some tooting of trumpets in the background, uh, Matt, is this a <laughs> sign that Rishi Sunak wants to make crime a key part of his pitch to the public at the next election? Absolutely. It's all about trying to create uh, uh, dividing lines with the Labour Party and force the Labour Party to, to vote against uh, measures in this uh, sentencing bill, but also the Crime and Justice Bill, which uh, was also announced by the King. Uh, so they then can use at the general election uh, on pamphlets and, uh, and adverts and saying, well, look, Labour didn't vote for this specific measure uh, in, in, the, in our last legislative agenda. So, uh, and also overnight, you know, that we've already started to see uh, signs of that uh, dividing line. The, the Tories trying to brief out that uh, as Director of Public Prosecutions, Keir Starmer uh, was in favour of creating two-tier murder, so first-degree and second-degree murder. Um, and they're trying to basically uh, point to his past as a... Uh, prosecutor for signs that he would be a soft prime minister when it comes to law and order. Uh, now, it, 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 interesting though what uh, it, interesting though it is what is in the King's speech. One thing that wasn't was perhaps the most talked about policy of the last few days: Suella Bowman's plan to stop homeless people being given tents. Uh, by uh, charities, she uh, uh, it was briefed to the papers. She was tweeting about it, describing uh, living in a in a tent as a lifestyle choice, uh, living on the streets as a lifestyle choice. What's gone on there, Matt? Well, in the crime and justice uh, bill, which this um, this measure crackdown on homelessness was meant to to be included, it does have a line about uh, measures to, to tackle persistent nuisance and organised begging. Uh, which is part of the wider sort of crackdown they are they're going to be pursuing uh, to try and reduce the number of rough sleepers and it's it's aimed at basically if you decline the offer of support for accommodation and for for tackling your addiction whether that be drug or alcohol or or the mental health support services then then the police would be given powers to move you on and as part of this there's going to be a new civil penalty to punish uh, charities or other organisations who are helping those who are refusing support to remain homeless and, and remain on the streets. Um, so, I mean, as ever, the, the, the King's speech doesn't contain all the details of the legislation, but we are hearing that there's, there's not been collective agreement on the specific civil penalty to punish charities. And so basically we'll have to wait until the legislation is published, possibly the end of this week or next week, to see if that measure that Suella Braverman wants in there has survived. We know that there's fierce uh, opposition within the cabinet to that measure, so we'll have to wait and see. 
And that was Matt Dathan there. The Times is Home Affairs. It's loads of coverage and analysis of the King's Speech, of course, online at thetimes.co.uk, all as part of your subscription. You know what to do. Go online, have a look at that. Now, you're going to head over to How to Win an Election with Peter Madison, Danny Finkelstein and Polly McKenzie as they reveal the policy, the worst policy they were ever involved in. But for now, for me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.